0: So for three years, he didn't have a name. His humanity had been reduced to a number. He was simply Prisoner 119104. Before being arrested and transported to a Nazi concentration camp, Viktor Frankl, uh, who was Prisoner 119104, he was a prominent Jewish psychiatrist in Vienna and in his best-selling 1946 book Man's Search for Meaning he tells the story of a high school science teacher who had uh, was teaching the class about how the world works and he, his teacher said this life is nothing more than a combustion process a process of oxidation and Frankel nearly jumped out of his chair and responded sir if this is so then what is the meaning of life? See, what Frankl knew in his gut, like all of us, that our existence is not accidental. Our existence is not merely coincidental. You cannot reduce humanity to a simple process of combustion, molecules and cells working in order. In fact, at the end of his book, his whole conclusion is this. He says this, Those who have a why... To live can bear almost any how. See, Frankel was liberated from a Nazi concentration camp, and he wrote this book, "The Meaning of Life," in Nine Days After. And looking back on his time in the concentration camps, Frankel concluded that the difference, the main difference between those who had lived and those who had died, those who had basically survived, came down to one thing: meaning. Those who had meaning, those who had a deep sense of meaning, were were able to endure the hard atrocities of life in a concentration camp. And those who had given up hope, those who had no reason to live, were the ones who died. See, everyone is asking these basic questions of meaning. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the problem in the world? And how does that problem get solved? You may not word it exactly that way, but everybody at some point in their life wrestles with those deep questions of meaning. And when you meet a person who has a clearly defined answer to the question of why, a person who's living with a deep sense of meaning, even if it's not your sense of meaning, you kind of admire them, don't you? They seem to have a sense of direction and purpose. A person who's living with a sense of meaning. They've had the courage to ask and answer these ultimate questions. Astronomer Carl Sagan once wrote, We make our world significance by the courage of our questions and the depths of our answers. See, friends, today as we start this new sermon series to the book of Genesis, it is a book of beginnings. In fact, the, the, the name, the title Genesis simply means beginnings. It's a book that goes back to the very beginning to answer life's biggest questions. And though you and I, at times in our life, might suppress those questions, though we may not have the courage to answer them, though we might often struggle to find the answers, every single person, to a man and a woman, wants to know the answers to the biggest questions in life. That's why, no matter your background. No matter how you were raised, no matter what baggage you might be bringing in here this morning, there is a unifying principle to all of us. It's it's one of the things that binds us as humans. We all long for meaning. We have all wrestled with these big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the problem and how does that problem get solved? And what I love about the book of Genesis is that before getting to those questions, and it will... It begins with the biggest question, the more fundamental question of who is God? The book of Genesis is going to make a startling claim that before you can know who you are, before you can know why you're here, before you can adequately answer the question of what the problem is and how it gets solved, you have to answer the question of who is God? In fact, the very first person we're introduced to in the Bible is God himself. As we begin our series in Genesis, I want to make the same claim that our meaning, your meaning is wrapped up in this first question, who is God? Then we will get into the other questions like who created the world and why did he do it? Who you are and do you matter to God? We're going to look at what went wrong in the world, why everything is so frustrated, and we're going to answer, will it ever be made right again? Now you may be thinking, Pastor, how can a book written 3,500 years ago speak to me today about my meaning, my purpose? How will it address my problems and my issues? And I think that's a fantastic question. Let me give you a brief intro to the book because I think that uh, when you you get more oriented to this book, you're going to find that though it's ancient, it speaks to us today. The title of the book, Genesis, is just the Greek translation of that first Hebrew word in Genesis 1-1. And that translates into English, in the beginning. Genesis is... Part one of five books called the Pentateuch or the, the Torah. So it comes as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a multi-volume set to us. And Genesis is that first volume in that multi-volume work. They're the five books of Moses. Moses wrote them and he wrote them to the Israelites who had just been delivered out of slavery where their people have suffered for over 400 years. I mean, that's longer than our country has been established, right? Their people were in slavery for 400 years and they've just been delivered out of it. And Moses writes this book for them. See, they're in the wilderness. They're headed towards the land that's been promised to them, this promised land. And Moses has one job. He needs to remind them of who they are, who God is, where they've been, and where they're going. You can imagine that if you've been enslaved as a people group for over 400 years, it's easy to lose your sense of identity, isn't it? You've been a piece of property for over 400 years. For as long as you can remember back in your family's history, they've been slaves. As far as they could remember back, they've been slaves. They, they just don't have a sense of identity anymore. Many have lost their faith in God, and who could blame them, right? They've been surrounded by this competing worldview in Egypt. They've heard their creation myths. They've heard about their gods. In fact, Pharaoh himself was a divine incarnation of God himself. And every day as they marched out to build their pyramids, to build their great cities, it was a reminder to them, you have no identity. Pharaoh is God and whoever your God is, he is not. And Moses needs to get their heads and their hearts ready for the life ahead of them because for the very first time in their life, they're free. They're free. Doesn't that sound like us? We live in a world of competing worldviews that are all vying for our attention. Every single one of us in this room has lost their sense of identity at some point in their life. We've asked those big existential questions. And every single one of us needs to know where we've been and where we're headed. That's what the book of Genesis is all about. Simply put as a story, what does Genesis cover? It covers the time period from the very beginning of time. In one, chapter 1 verse 1, and the very final verse... We hear about the end of Joseph's life. That's a lot of time to be covered. It doesn't cover every detail about everything that happened from the beginning of time to the end of Joseph's life. It leaves out significant swaths of time, details, people, events, questions, and answers. And And most often when we come to a book like Genesis, it's very easy in our modern and postmodern mindsets to come with our list of questions, right? We go, oh, we're looking at the book of Genesis, right? I have a bunch of questions for Genesis. And if you come with your predetermined set of questions, friends, I promise you, you'll be severely disappointed with this book. Often we come to Genesis with these questions. Hey, how old is the earth? I want to know. What mechanism did God use to create everything? What about evolution? What about the dinosaurs? Right? We come and saying, I want Genesis to answer these questions. But friends, let me tell you something. Moses couldn't care less about those questions. That is not why he wrote the book of Genesis. Because why? Those are not the questions his people need as they regain their sense of identity and prepare for the life ahead of them. Do you think that the people are going, Moses, we'll be able to be the people of God in the promised land if we know about the dinosaurs? That's the thing that's holding us up. Moses, we can, we can worship God with, 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 with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength if we just know the date of the earth. If we knew that, it would solve everything. No, that's not the fundamental question of this book. Those aren't the questions his people need. And to be honest with you, that's not a really good way to read a book in general. You don't insert your questions into a book. Here's what you do when you read a book. You read a book to see what questions it seeks to answer, and then based on that, you evaluate it. So when I need a question about biology answered, it would be wrong for me to go to the Lord of the Rings. It doesn't answer questions of biology. Last week, I installed a fan And as I was looking through the instruction manual, I wasn't looking for questions to the meaning of life, right? Because that's not what that little booklet was written to tell me about. The book of Genesis is not interested in giving us a detailed account of the mechanisms or the timing of how God created the world. But it is interested in answering these questions. Who created the world and why did he do it? Who am I? Who are you and me and do we matter to God? That question is raised and answered in this book. It's also gonna ask what went wrong in the world. Every single one of us looks out into the world and comes to the same conclusion. It is not the way it's supposed to be. And if you don't believe me, I've got two words for you, presidential debate. That right there captured what is wrong In the world, we can't even have a conversation, right? There's something deeply wrong in the world. And Genesis is gonna tell us what went wrong. And it's also gonna ask the question, will it ever be made right again? And the questions it answers are the biggest questions of your soul. Everyone needs to know the answers to these questions. And though the book of Genesis was written 3,500 years ago, it reaches through time and speaks to you and me Today. Now, if you were to to divide the book of Genesis up, it it, it's designed to fall into two main parts. Chapters one through eleven tell the very beginning story of the world. It's looking all the way back and going as this is how the world began. And then chapters 12 through 50 tell the story where, it, where, where Genesis 1 through 11 is zoomed out at this macro level. What happened and how did the world begin? Genesis 12 zooms in on one single family. And we get the story of Abraham. And we see it's the beginning of God's plan to bring about the restoration of the world. Now, for our purposes, as we begin preaching through this book, we're going to divide it into three movements. Genesis 1 to 11 tells the story of creation and exile. So that's what we're in right now. We're beginning part one, creation and exile. And we'll go through Genesis 1 through 11. Then after a break, we'll get into Genesis chapter 12 and go through 36 as we see the story of covenant and longing. We are going to see the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's chapters 12 through 36, covenant and longing. And then part 3, Genesis 37 through 50 tells the story of preservation and suffering. We get the story of Joseph and his life. And it's a story of God preserving him through the midst of suffering. Genesis 37 through 50 Now, my job today is to give an overview of Genesis 1 through 50. It's a flyover. And so as we're uh, uh, going in the plane, I'm just going to be pointing out some major structures, some things for you not to miss, some themes as we go throughout the book of Genesis, when hopefully it will give you a framework for the whole book. And then as each week goes along, we'll look at uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the book of Genesis And so my outline today really just follows those three major parts that we're going to go through um, in the book of Genesis. So we'll have uh, creation and exile, covenant and longing, and then preservation and suffering. So first, creation and exile. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. Let's get into God's Word. God's Word says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If you've been a Christian or if you've been around uh, the Bible, Genesis one is probably a verse you've heard before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's a danger with such familiar words is that we can, uh, we, we can become so familiar with them that we lose the, the profundity of those words. I mean, just stop for a moment. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It begins with seven perfectly crafted Hebrew words. If you know anything about Judaism, seven's a big deal. This was super intentional. Moses wanted to say, Seven is this perfect number. I'm going to choose seven words to tell you. The beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's majestic in its simplicity. It's powerful in its scope. In saying heavens and earth, it's saying in the beginning, God created everything. And you notice our first subject of the Bible is God. In the beginning, who? God. And he's the one who creates. Right off the bat. In the first few words, we learn God is a creator. He's creative. He is the one who has created. We've already answered one of our biggest questions. Where did this all come from? God. God created. Heavens and earth create these bookends to the effect that we understand God has created everything. And if you read through Genesis chapters 1 through 2, you see that God takes a dark, watery, empty chaos... And he turns it into a beautiful garden where human beings can flourish. So what does he do? He takes the chaos and he brings order. He takes the nothing and he fills it up. Seven times in chapters 1 through 2, God looks back on his creation and says, It is good. It is good. And then in Genesis 1, we meet the first man and the first woman. Adam and Eve, these are two real human beings who really existed. They are individual people. And yet at the same time, they also represent humanity as our first mother and father. Adam's very name means humanity and Eve's very name means life. And they do something that no other creature does. They represent God. The way the Bible says that is they image him. They're created in his image, which gives them a unique position out of all of creation. They are given this dignifying joy to reflect an image, the character, the goodness, the life, the creativity of their creator to the rest of the world. In short, they're supposed to be and act like God. God. In fact, you see that, and we'll get into this more as we look at these these verses in detail, but the, 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 the creation mandate that God gives to them is to go and take the emptiness and the chaos of the world that he's created and bring order and fill it up. In the same way that God brings order to the chaos, in the same way that God takes the nothing and fills it up, he says, you humans go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and fill it with my image. You see how they're supposed to be and act like God? Adam and Eve are to reproduce, to make cultures, build cities and neighborhoods so that they fill the earth with more and more of the image of God. And as humanity sets out on this mission, God gives them free moral agency to decide how they're going to do it. As they go out and are fruitful and multiply, will they do so keeping God as their greatest good, obeying his good commands and following his wise instruction? Or will they demote God? Will they reject his commands? And will they go be fruitful and multiply according to their desires and plan? And that's what the tree of knowledge of evil is all about. In Genesis 2, we learn there's a tree in this garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look what God says about it. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, up until this point, God has been the one providing for them and defining for them what is good, right? God looks at it and says, it is good. It is good. He's the one who gives them these things. God is the one with the knowledge of what is good and evil. He's the one who has the right and responsibility to define and declare what is good, true, and beautiful. And this tree represents the choice for humanity. Will humans trust God's declaration of what is good and true and beautiful or... Will they reject God and take the opportunity for themselves, in a sense, to dethrone God and define and declare what is good, true, and beautiful? That's what that tree is all about. It represents for them, will they trust God or will they put their confidence in themselves? And as you get to Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve eat the fruit of this tree. And when that happens, sin enters into the fabric of creation. Already in Genesis 3, we're three chapters in and we learn about why the world has gone wrong. This is the problem from which every problem you've ever faced comes from. It's the main problem. Sin is that pervasive desire inside all of us to call the shots, to do things our way. This is where your pride comes from. This is where my selfishness comes from. This is where our self-centeredness comes from. This is where our ingratitude comes from. This is why we get angry when things aren't going our way. It's because of sin. This is why you and I suppress the truth and exchange it for a lie. This is why you and I have a proclivity to worship creation rather than our creator. This is why even when you have the best of intentions... It's why they fall short. It's because of sin. This is why on a daily, regular basis, we experience fear, guilt, and shame. This is why the very creation itself is groaning. This is why we experience natural disasters and calamities. Everything that is broken in our world can trace its fracturing to this moment when sin enters the world. And when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they instantaneously feel the sting. See, before sin, the Bible tells us they were naked and unashamed. You know why? They were fully seen by each other, they were fully known by each other, and they were fully loved by each other. And in that kind of environment, there's no place for shame. But now, Sin enters in, doubt creeps in, and for the first time, they feel insecure with each other. They feel exposed and vulnerable. So, what do they do? They grab some leaves and they make the first clothes and they cover themselves, which is another way to say they begin to hide. See, the reason it's difficult for husbands and and wives to relate to each other, the reason it's difficult for husbands and wives to trust each other and to fully enjoy each other, it is not because men are from Mars and women are from Venus. That has nothing to do with it. It's because sin drives us towards self-preservation instead of self-giving. It's because sin drives us towards enmity instead of compassion. It is because sin drives us towards insecurity instead of peace. Fundamentally, that's what's broken and wrong in the world. Before sin entered in, Adam and Eve enjoyed unmitigated fellowship with God. The way the Bible says it, he says they enjoyed uh, walks in the evening with the cool of the breeze. It's beautiful. Every day at the end of their work, they just enjoyed time with God. But now sin has caused a rift. See, God comes to the man and the woman to discuss what's happened. They're in hiding and no one will own their sin. God as a patient father asks what went wrong, inviting them to just tell him. And what did they do? They start pointing the finger at everyone and everything else. No one will own their sin. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. And when all of the aftermath happens, they are exiled from the garden. But right before he kicks them out, as God is telling them how the effects of the curse of sin will happen on humanity, he looks at the serpent and he tells them that there's coming a day when a wounded warrior will come to defeat you. It's the first glimmer of hope we've had since sin has entered in. Look what Genesis 3, 15 says. God speaking to the ancient serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall uh, bruise his heel. He tells the serpent one day there will be a clash between you and an offspring of the woman. You will deal a fatal blow to his heel as he deals a fatal blow to your head. You can imagine, right? A, ser- a serpent is on the ground, and as the wounded warrior goes to crush his head, the serpent will bite him on the heel. Now, we're not given the details. We don't know yet who this wounded warrior is or when he will come. But this is good news. It's the first good news we've had since the fall. That there is coming a day. There is coming one who will crush the serpent's head to bring shalom once again. And then as you go throughout the rest of Genesis 3-11, through you see how sin plays out. You would think with this information, knowing how things are going to play out, it would get better. That Adam and Eve as they tell their kids, listen, something has gone wrong. But what Genesis 3-11 through shows us is a downward spiral of humanity. All the good order of God's original design turns into decay, destruction, and uh, desolation. In Genesis 4, we have the first murder. Sin pits brother against brother. And the sin of comparison and jealousy and pride causes Cain to kill his brother Abel. In Genesis 4, we see sin bringing perversion and distortion to marriage. You see, marriage by God's design is supposed to be one man with one woman for one lifetime. And here we see a man named Lamech who takes two wives, takes them like property. And he begins to gloat about his killing of another image bearer. He kills a man and he sings a song about it. One of the first songs in the Bible is Lamech singing about his, his reveling in that he's more violent than his relative Cain. He said, you think Cain was violent? I'm Lamech. I, I, I am a destruction to this world. And anyone who would try to hold me accountable for my violence will be met with my vengeance. Genesis 5, we get one of the first genealogies in the Bible, of some of the first humans, and there's this refrain. We're introduced to to a person who lived, and then it says, he lived and he died. He lived and he died. He lived and he died. And what Genesis 5 tells us is sin and death have spread to all humanity. And then in Genesis 6, 11 through 12, we read this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. In Genesis 1, God sees what he has made. He delights in it and what does he do? He calls it good. And now in Genesis 6, God sees what he's made and he grieves it. And he pronounces it corrupt. Do you see the distinction there? And this leads God to bring judgment on the world where the entirety of humanity is drowned through a cataclysmic flood. And when the water recedes and a new family is chosen to start over, we find that not even the flood can wash the world of the plague of sin. You would think God finds favor and Noah. He's wiped out the rest of the earth. Okay, we're cleansing it, starting over. It's a new beginning. And right away, Noah builds a garden, plants a vineyard, and gets drunk. We find his sons do something sketchy, something shameful to him, and the spiral continues downward. And we're left with the question, what can wash away my sin? Not even the flood can do it. And then part one ends. Genesis 1 to 11 ends with a multiplied humanity building a city after their own image to bring glory to their name. We find out humans have invented bricks and they're so impressed with themselves. They build a tower to reach the heavens. It's like they're saying, we can build our way to God. They've rejected their purpose to live their lives to the glory of God. They're reveling in their own self-glory. And the Bible tells us that God knows that this self-centered city will become hard and cruel, built on pride, full of violence and oppression. So God scatters them by confusing their language. And the book, this first part, ends in despair. And what I think is going on is that God is telling us chapter by chapter, sin is not getting better. The problem isn't solving itself. It's this downward spiral where everything is getting worse. It ends with humanity Unwilling and unable to fix the problem of sin. It's like a series ending on a cliffhanger. What will happen to humanity? What will happen to God's creation? Will it ever be good again? Will God do something about the problem of sin? In Genesis 1-11, to we see creation and at the same time we see exile. God has created everything good yet because of sin we live in exile. Now let's look really quickly at Genesis 12 through 36 to see the themes of covenant and longing. I promise you these next sections aren't as long. In Genesis 1 to 11 it's the story of the beginning of God's creation but Genesis 12 through 50 starts to narrow it in on God's story of redemption and in Genesis 12 God comes to a man named Abram and makes a promise to him. Look with me at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is his promise. The Lord God said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred "'and your father's house to the land that I will show you, "'and I will make of you a great nation, "'and I will bless you and make your name great "'so that you will be a blessing. "'I will bless those who bless you, "'and him who dishonors you I will curse.'" And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God tells Abram that through him and his family, all the nations of the world, all the people of the world will find blessing. Now think about that. Since this point, since the fall, there hasn't been much blessing going on. Noah is the only person since Adam and Eve that's found blessing and favor with God. He was blessed by God, his family, but it was limited in scope. And now God is saying there is going to be a way for all people to find blessing and favor with God again. Do you see what's happening? God is extending and multiplying his grace. See, this hinge between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 reminds me of Romans 5 verse 20 where Paul says, where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. You get to the end of Genesis 1-11 through and all you're seeing is an increase in sin. But because God is a God of mercy and grace, we see him multiplying his grace. He's saying through this one family, there'll be a way for people to be blessed again. But there's a problem. We find out in Genesis 12 that Abraham, Abram and Sarai, his wife, haven't been able to have children and they're not getting any younger. The Bible tells us that when God comes to Abram, he is 75 years old and his wife Sarai is 65. So you're, you're, you're left with this problem. How will God make them a great nation? How will he have this abundant family if Sarai remains barren? And then we move over to Genesis 15 and we see God establishing a covenant with Abram. And as we go on, we see years pass and they continue childless. Look with me at, at Genesis 15, 4 through 6. So Abram's wrestling with this reality that he, God has promised him that he will have children, and yet they've not had a single child and they're not getting any younger. And so in Genesis 15, 4 through 6, we see this. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir. He was talking about one of his servants. And he said, your very son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. And he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So he tells Abram, even though you guys are getting old, even though you've not been able to have children, I promise you, you will have offspring and they will number more than the stars in the heaven and the sands on the sea. And then jump down to Genesis 17, one through eight. It's another promise that God makes to Abram. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to, listen, be God to you and your offspring. After you, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. As God continues to unpack his promises to him, he tells them fundamentally at the heart of this covenant is this I want to be your God again, I want you to be my people. You see, God drawing them and pulling him back into relationship. And if you read through the book of Genesis, you see that one year later, Sarah gives birth to Isaac, just as God has promised in their old age. Abraham is one hundred years old, and Sarah and Sarah is ninety years old when they give birth to Isaac. And so we see in the life of Abram, Abraham in Genesis twelve through twenty-three, and then you go forward in the book in chapters twenty-four through twenty-seven, you learn about his son Isaac, and then you see his son Jacob in chapters twenty-eight through 36. And with each generation God reminds and renews his promise to be their God and to make them into a great nation in which all of the earth will be uh, blessed. And what we see in this section is that God is a God of covenant faithfulness. And yet right alongside this theme of covenant we see this other theme of longing. You see God will always make good on his promises yet because, uh, but his promises don't always come in the exact way or at the exact time that people expect. You notice 25 years occurred between the time of the promise to Abraham and the time of the birth of Isaac. And because the problem of the plague of sin is yet to be eradicated, what you find out as you read through this book of Genesis is that these families are far from perfect. With every passing generation we're going to see cowardice, deception, betrayal, greed, comparison, favoritism, even murder. In fact, it's worse than an episode of Jerry Springer. These people are not perfect people. You would expect, right? That the that the Bible is this book of these heroes, these people who lived perfectly, but every single family has issues, has struggles, has problems, they're dysfunctional. And yet God is faithful even in their dysfunction, to bring about his good work. He's going to preserve this family in order to see about the redemption and blessing of all nations. So chapters 1 through 11, creation and exile. 12 through 36, creation or covenant and longing. And the last section, the story we get about Joseph, is chapters 37 through 50 and it's about preservation in suffering. In this famous story, we find that Jacob has uh, 12 sons, and the 11th son, his name is Joseph. And we read in Genesis 37, 3-4, Israel, who's also Jacob, his name was changed, loved Joseph more than any of of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made for him a robe of many colors, And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So what happens is Jacob's overt favoritism caused jealousy and envy among his sons. And Joseph wasn't humble about it. And he made it even worse. He gloated before his brothers. He has these dreams where they're bowing down before him. And instead of keeping those dreams to himself, he goes to his brothers and he tells them, hey, I've been having dreams Where all of you are surrounding me and like bowing down before me. Isn't that great? And and it causes more of that hatred and animosity to him. So what do his brothers do? Do they forgive him? No. They fake his death and sell him into slavery in Egypt. And so as a slave in Egypt, we read this in Genesis 39, 2 through 3. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Though Joseph had been sold into slavery, the Lord was with him. This will be a recurring theme in Joseph's life. Every time Joseph goes down into the pit, we read, but the Lord was with him. And the Lord brings him up from the pit of despair and he rises to prominence in the house of, of, of uh, of, uh, of Potiphar. But just as fast as he was raised up, he's falsely acclu- accused of trying to sleep with Potters- Potiphar's wife, and he goes right back down into the pit. He goes back down into the prison. But there the Lord is with him, and eventually he is lifted out of prison. And becomes second in command in all of the house of Pharaoh. In fact, every time he goes down into the pit, he's raised up at a better, higher level than he was before. And all of it, all of it was for this moment in time. You see, there's coming a famine in the Middle East. And he raises Joseph up to manage Pharaoh's house and nation so that when the famine comes, they will have food. And as the, 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 the turning point in the plot line of the story happens, his brothers who've remained down in the promised land come to find out that they have no food. And they go to Egypt to find food. And who do they find there? They find their brother, Joseph Joseph. But instead of paying them back an eye for an eye, he shows his brothers grace and forgiveness. He's reunited with his family and they're saved from starvation and death. And we see that the family of promise is saved from starvation and death. They're saved through suffering and by grace they are forgiven. At the very end of the book, Joseph says these words. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this one verse summarizes really the whole book of Genesis. That despite our sin and evil, despite our unfaithfulness, despite how often you and I turn our backs on God, that God is faithful to take what is evil and turn it into good. That's the book of of Genesis. Now before we leave, I want to give us three quick applications so that you leave here with something today more than an, uh, an overview. Real quick, here it is. Number one, as we go through the book of Genesis, I want you to look for Jesus. His name is never explicitly mentioned in the book, but Every scripture whispers his name. In fact, Jesus told us when he was here on earth that everything written about him in the law and the prophets was actually written about him. Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, says it very well. She says it like this. Every story in the Bible whispers his, Jesus's name. He is like a missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you see a beautiful picture. Family, I want us to learn how to see Jesus in all of Scripture. It's a skill that you can develop, and we're going to help you as your pastors to develop that skill. And not only will it increase your your biblical literacy and your theological acumen, but it will increase your devotion for Christ as you see just how necessary and sufficient Christ is as your Savior. So look for Jesus as we look through the book of Genesis. Number two. As you go through Genesis, I want you to identify the exiles, the longings, and the sufferings in your life. All of us have felt exiled before. All of us have felt a sense of longing and every single one of us have suffered sometime in our life. And as we come to the book of Genesis, it's story after story of exile, longing, and suffering. And this is an opportunity for us to identify with the characters in in these stories because we too live east of Eden. J.R.R. Tolkien says this, we all long for Eden and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, in its gentleness and most human form, is still soaked with a sense of exile. So when you see a character in the book of Genesis going through a particular struggle or longing, I want us to enter in. I want us to do some soul work to find that in every exile, we have a home in Christ. For every longing, we have a fountain of satisfaction in Christ. And for every suffering, there is a comfort in Jesus. And finally, number three, this is super simple. Read the book of Genesis. It doesn't get more concrete and hands-on and practical than that. It's 50 chapters. If you were to read it from beginning to the end, it would probably take about three hours on average. You could do that in one sitting. You can do that in several sittings. You can do it one chapter at a time. It doesn't matter how you do it, but let's commit to reading the book of Genesis together. It would be great if before each Sunday we've read at least that chapter beforehand. So Seven Mile, your pastors have been and will continue to pray that God would use this series as we invest in this book of beginnings to stir your affections for Christ as we see that he is the Savior who ends our exile, longing, and suffering. Let's pray.